0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series, The Word Became Flesh, today as we look to the Bible to John chapter 1, verses 19 to 28. As Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Knowing Who We Are.
1: You know, there's hardly a person alive who's not been counseled at some time, you know, especially when we're growing up, to make the most out of life. You know, Perhaps you remember your parents warning you against laziness and, and becoming a bum. Some of you had school teachers who told you uh, of the possibilities that could lie ahead of you if you just studied hard. You know, A number of years ago, a very popular movie used the Latin words, carpe diem, or seize the day. However we put it, it can be summed up in these words, don't settle for second best. You know, often as we think about being the best we can be, we cast about for role models. We look around at people who have been leaders or who have accomplished something that we admire. And today, I want us to look at a man whom Jesus Christ said was in his time the greatest man who had ever lived. His name was John. Now, as I've said before, please don't confuse this John with the author of the book of John. Now, in order not to confuse, I'm going to continually reference John the Baptist and the author of the book, who is the Apostle John. Now, here's a little secret about John the Baptist's greatness. He knew who he was, and he was under no illusions. The birth of Jesus made him only too aware that there was only one truly great man, and he wasn't it. But that humbling effect didn't limit him. Rather, it was the key to his greatness. In our ongoing study of John chapter 1, I'm reading verses 19 to 28, and this is the testimony of John when Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And they had been sent by the Pharisees. And they asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. You know, at first glance, you might think that when we come to verse 19, we have moved beyond the Christmas story, and and we have. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18 has, has all the theological foundation for the birth of Jesus. Jesus is the eternal Word who has always existed, who is both with the Father and who is God at the same time. And then at a point in world history, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that is the theological foundation for the birth of Jesus. And then with verse 19, we move from the theological foundations to the arrival of John the Baptist, who paves the way for the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. So the Apostle John gives us the theological meaning of the birth of Jesus, and then immediately goes on to the adult Jesus and his ministry. And so you might think this really is no longer appropriate to be preached at Christmas time. But before you so quickly dismiss this from the Christmas theme, let me suggest the contrary. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18 are verses that tell us the eternal identity of the Son of God. But John 1, 19, to the end of the chapter, gives us the earthly identity of the Son of God. So the first half of the chapter tells of his eternal existence and the last half of his earthly existence. And furthermore, you're going to have to notice that the text that we've read today deals with the question of the identity of John the Baptist. And as we're going to see, that most naturally leads us to the question of the earthly identity of Jesus. See, I think just to let you know where I think this text is leading us, It's not just in understanding the identity of John the Baptist and and his understanding of his own role, but also, I think this text is a text that helps us understand our identity in the light of the coming of Jesus. Now, please appreciate that when the Apostle John is writing this book, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they've already written their books. So, these three have already completed their work some 30 years earlier, And in those 30 years, their books have become widely read and they're widely circulated. The Apostle John, when he writes, is is not interested in merely repeating what the earlier books have said. There would have been no need to do that at all. What he's interested in doing is providing more evidence for the actual identity of Jesus. And so we see how, abruptly, the Apostle John takes us to a dialogue that happened between a group of Jews and John the Baptist. No real introduction to John, just a dialogue. That's because the Apostle John simply assumes that all of his readers are thoroughly familiar with John the Baptist. They've read about him in the other three books. You know, but for our sakes, let's do a little review. John the Baptist was born to very aged parents. Indeed, his mom, was well past menopause when he was born. And the Bible says that his birth was miraculous. And that in itself is fascinating. See, not only was the birth of Jesus a miraculous birth, so was the birth of John the Baptist. And furthermore, not only was the birth of Jesus the result of a promise, so also was the birth of John the Baptist. God gave his parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, a promise that they would have a son and that he would be a prophet of the Most High God he would prepare all Israel for the salvation of God. John was filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, the text says. He was undoubtedly a remarkable child. And when he became a preacher, he created such a stir that all Israel trembled under his words. And and here's why. In John's day, there was an expectation in Israel that the Messiah was going to arrive at any time. and, And when he came, He would sit on David's ancient throne, and he would become the legitimate king of Israel, and not only of Israel, but he would be the legitimate king of the whole world. The Roman occupying government thought that that kind of talk, well, that was treasonous. It has huge political overtones. This was the talk of revolution. And the Jewish religious leaders were placed in a most awkward situation. You see, on the one hand, they had to tell the people that they also believed in the Messiah, or else there would have been a near riot in Jerusalem. But on the other hand, they had to persuade their Roman overlords that they had no intention of being a part of a revolution. So it was a tricky little act of diplomacy. And then, to make matters worse, along came John. And his central message was that the kingdom of God was at hand, which could only mean that the kingdom of the Messiah was at hand. It was right at the door. The great king of Israel was coming and was about to be revealed. And by the way, that's the reason Matthew begins his book with a lengthy genealogy. You see, the book of Matthew is written for a Jewish audience, and the genealogy at the beginning is intended to show the faithful that, that Jesus really is the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. And so from all four Gospels, we notice that from the outset, the identity of Jesus as such, that is, he is destined to rule Israel's throne. And as we've seen, this kind of talk would create a very tense political problem for the Jewish leaders. And John the Baptist is preaching now, and he's only adding fuel to this very dangerous fire. The crowd's great masses of Jews are pouring out of the cities, especially Jerusalem, and they're all going to hear him preach. And and Rome noticed and was uneasy and began to pressure the Jewish religious leaders to become involved before the troops needed to be sent in. But John publicly called the religious leaders a brood of vipers, and he went right on preaching. But there was more to John's message. In order to get ready for the new dawning era of the kingdom of God, all must now repent of their sins and be baptized in the Jordan River. And that's why we have the name John the Baptist. He was known as a baptizer. And just so that we understand what baptism meant in that day, you know, baptism was a ritual form of purification. The Jews practiced it constantly, and John used this form or this image to show that all Israel was filthy. They were covered with filth. They were covered with sin. They were not ready to meet their Messiah. They needed to be made clean. They, they needed to come to him and wash away their filth and the rebellion against God, and he was baptizing them in the Jordan. Get ready, John said. The Messiah is coming right after me. And for John, being Jewish was not enough. And in effect, John was treating the Jews of Israel as if they were Gentiles. See, for him, it made no difference to him if you were a Jew or a Gentile. The Messiah was going to rule over them all anyway. And so you Jews, he says, are as morally filthy as the Gentiles, and your sins also must be washed away. Otherwise, you will never be ready when the kingdom of God breaks into history. And everyone was listening now and they were coming not only from Jerusalem, but they were coming from Galilee. All Israel was abandoning their towns and villages, and they wanted to hear more, and they wanted to get ready, and everyone was looking around and saying, where is the Messiah when he comes?
0: Recently, I sat down with friends Mark and Corey. Their testimony of faith and reliance upon God is inspiring. You can listen to the entire interview at backtothebible.ca. But today I wanted to share just a few words of their encouragement. When we see a ministry like Back to the Bible Canada, that's had such a profound impact on our lives as a couple and family, we just want to lean in and return the blessing. I may never be on radio teaching, but what we can do is give. We can give our part, just a little something we can be involved with and invest in eternal things. We're so grateful for Mark and Corey and many others who choose to invest in Back to the Bible. Our prayer is that you would do likewise. Help us finish this year well and begin 2018 ready to do even more. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: Luke 3, verse 7 tells us that John was anything but gentle with the crowds that were coming to him to be baptized. I mean, he called them a brood of vipers. And then in verse 8, anticipating the claim that some would have, that they had an advantage because they were Jews, he said, And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. In other words, your Jewishness will be of no advantage to you at all when the Messiah comes. And yet, as roughly as John was treating the people who came out to him, yet come they did. And and as the crowds were increasing, people were asking what they should do. that's because John was telling them that unless they were able to produce fruit in keeping with repentance, they were going to continue to be no more than a brood of vipers. And so what were they supposed to do? And and then John told them directly. They were to share it with the poor, every one of them. Tax collectors who had a horrible reputation of overtaxing the population in order to to line their pockets. Well, they also were coming to be baptized. and, And John warned them that if they were to produce fruit from now on, they were never again to charge anyone with more than what was due. Otherwise, their baptism meant nothing and they would remain a brood of vipers. And here now is where it gets really interesting. Among those who were asking what they should do were Roman soldiers, I mean, of all things. I mean, one can only imagine what that might have meant to the local centurions and to the company commanders. And if you were one of the religious leaders in Israel, trying to walk that tightrope between being faithful in Israel and to the Roman occupying troops, the dance of keeping both sides happy, well, this was only making matters so much worse. I mean, the advent of John the Baptist's revival meetings at the Jordan, I mean, it was shaking up the entire country. Well, it was all outrageous, but the man was wildly popular and his movement was sweeping through Israel like a great tidal wave. The crowds would stand in line just waiting to be baptized, and the Jewish religious leaders seemed powerless to stand against this amazing populist movement. And The Roman pressure was no doubt heavy upon them, and they tried contradicting him, but he just insulted them publicly, <laughs> and the people seemed to agree. So the next tactic was to ask him who he was. In essence, they were actually playing to his ego. Who are you? I mean, given the gathering crowds and the things that people were saying about him, it would have been very easy for him to start to, you know, as they say, you know, drink the Kool-Aid and claim that he was the Messiah. I mean, after all, who in the world could get a crowd together like this man could? John was, first of all, asked point blank, are you the Messiah? See, the word Christ in your text is the word Messiah. It's the same word. Christ is simply the Greek translation. The Hebrew word Messiah means the great king of Israel are you the Messiah? And in verse 20, he confesses, I am not the Christ. Now, just before we pass by this answer too quickly, please understand how tempting this title must have been for John. He had a miraculous birth. Prophecies were made about his life. His ministry was taking all Israel by storm. I mean, all he had to do is to say that he was the Messiah and his ministry would grow from thousands perhaps many times that size, it would make him the most influential preacher in Jewish history. But in here, John the Apostle tells us that he, that is John the Baptist, confessed freely, that is, he had not even the slightest hesitation in answering the question. He said, I am not the Christ. He never tried for the title and he rejected any thought of it. The next question is also very interesting. Are you Elijah? It's a legitimate question. Elijah, who many think to be the father of Jewish prophets, a man who lived from about 870 BC, was regarded by all Jews with the greatest of reverence. Elijah, you see, never died. A chariot simply swept down from heaven and took him away. The Old Testament taught that Elijah would still have a role to play in Israel's history. So here's how the prophet Malachi describes it. He says, see, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. And that's from Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. And interestingly enough, John denies that he's Elijah. I say it's interesting because later on, Jesus would almost say that about him. I'm reading here Matthew eleven thirteen and 14 jesus is saying for all the prophets and the law prophesied until john and if and if you are willing to accept it he is the elijah who was to come so it seems to me that that john didn't know something that jesus knew about him see he didn't know that he was the fulfillment of the prophecy of malachi john the baptist didn't know everything that there was to know about his place in the history of israel and by the way We are not what we think we are. What we truly are is known to God. Listen to me. None of us knows truly who we are. You might be surprised to find out what God has called you for. Don't so quickly dismiss yourself as ordinary. You know, I've said it before. In in God's economy, there are no ordinary people. Who you are has little to do with who you think you are, it rather has everything to do with what God has called you to be. It has everything to do with how God has crafted and shaped you and the destiny that he has given you. You know, some of us would be genuinely surprised if we were to know what God thinks we are. But uh, this is a little insight into John. He did not regard himself as a great man, nor did he seek greatness. He didn't think he was the one who would come in the strength of Elijah, for he could not imagine himself making that kind of an impact. Neither did he think he was the prophet, which, by the way, I think is a reference to Moses. John was much too humble for any of that. Well, then the Pharisees say, well, then who are you? And that's the next question. If you won't conform to the standard answers, just who are you? And John's ready. He quotes Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. He's, he's the voice of that will prepare the road for the Messiah. He will clear the rocks off the road. In essence, he's the one who is called upon to remove the rubble off the road because the king is going to use the highway. The rubble, of course, is in the lives and in the hearts of the people of Israel. John knows he's the forerunner of the Messiah, and he's doing advance billing. And then says, John, lest you think that's too high of a calling, let me tell you, that I'm not worthy to untie the sandals of the Messiah. Now, in John's day, a number of Jewish rabbis taught that a disciple should carry out all the demands of his teacher, but never to untie his sandals. I mean, only a slave untied sandals. And John says, I'm not worthy to be his disciple. Indeed, I'm not even worthy to be his slave. Now, as we're going to see, when Jesus actually appears, John the Baptist's crowds are getting smaller and smaller, and people are constantly defecting from his meetings, and they're going over to Jesus. Now, when I began this message, I began referring to the phrase carpe diem, which is seize the day, and and don't you ever settle for second best in your life. And, And from one perspective, you might think John the Baptist had the opportunity to become the most effective preacher in the history of Israel, and he failed to grab the opportunity when it was before him. And because of that, he will always be remembered only as the guy who did the opening act for the big talent that followed after him. But if that's how you think, you fail to understand Jesus' assessment of greatness and therefore his also his assessment of John the Baptist. Listen to Jesus' words recorded in Matthew 11, verse 11. Truly I say to you, Among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. You know, another way of saying that is this. The greatest man to live in the Old Testament era was a man who understood his relationship to the Messiah. He knew what God made when he made him. He looked deeply into the ministry that God had entrusted to him, and he embraced it fully, accepting it as God's plan for his life. And when John's ministry went into decline. He knew he wasn't failing because he always understood the role that God had called him to play. And he understood that he was not the Messiah. I'm not the Messiah, I'm not Moses, I'm not the great man you think that I claim to be. I'm merely a man whose sole delight is to announce the coming of the Messiah, and I'm not even worthy to be called his slave. And it seems to me that has great Christmas significance. See, once we recognize who it is that's lying in the manger, we now judge our own significance from a very different perspective. For if all we accomplish in this life is showcasing that, we understand that Jesus is God who has come to us in human flesh. Well, our lives are a smashing success. We have seized the day because we've made much of Jesus. See, I think the shepherds were greater than Herod because the shepherds knelt before the Christ child. And Herod tried to hold on to his kingdom and was threatened by the Christ child. That's greatness.
0: John, help us make this a little bit more personal. I mean, in essence, uh, the key to John's greatness was his humility. What does that look like
1: for us? Yeah, I do think that, you know, from the eyes of the world, I mean, they always measure greatness by, you know, these are my accomplishments, these are the amount of people that follow me. I mean, on and on go all these markers that we have. Um, it's so refreshing to hear someone say, I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. You know, I'm just simply a voice crying out in the wilderness. I, you know, this is, this is a, a method for all of us. It is the greatest thing that we can do to deny ourselves and at the same time make Christ great. That, that is the, the, the mark of greatness.
0: Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue the series, The Word Became Flesh, right here on Back to the Bible Canada where we teach the Bible.
1: John the Evangelist stated the Christmas message most succinctly when he said, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The message of Christmas, if we think about it, is utterly astonishing. The second person of the Trinity humbled himself, condescending to become a man. God has visited us and brought us a message of mercy and love. On behalf of all of us at Back to the Bible Canada, I want to wish you a very, very Merry Christmas. May the joy of this season and the assurance of the love of God be felt in your home, your family, and among your loved ones. I also want to thank you for your faithful support to this ministry. Be encouraged. Emmanuel, God is with us. Have a Merry Christmas.